Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters from Douglas Wilson's The Light from Behind the Sun. Listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Chapter 1. Lewis Gets It Wrong Those who have read me for a long time know that I am a C.S. Lewis junkie. I have read and reread him, and have been edified by him in ways beyond reckoning. If I were to calculate the impact that various writers have had on me, and there have been many who have, he would always come in first, and by a large margin. Even where you find my caveats, as in his early accommodations with evolution or the atrocious things he says about some of the Psalms, I find myself simultaneously appalled and edified. For example, in Reflections on the Psalms, he says this, Still more in the psalmist's tendency to chew over and over the cud of some imagery to dwell in a kind of self-torture on every circumstance that aggravates it. Most of us can recognize something we have met in ourselves. We are, after all, blood brothers to these ferocious, self-pitying, barbaric men. But still, reading through that book, which I think is worst, I find myself instructed and blessed at every turn. So, go figure. The problem lies with those Christians like myself who do not recoil from the imprecatory psalms in the same way that Lewis does. Lewis thinks that these psalms are included in God's word as a sort of object lesson, a don't-try-this-at-home-kids kind of thing. The ferocious parts of the psalms serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness, and that it, if not its perpetrators, is hateful to God. Reflections on the Psalms 33. As one of those who believe that we are to harmonize the imprecatory psalms with the rest of Scripture, and that we are to utilize them in our corporate worship and private devotions, I am afraid that Lewis would most likely regard me as a dangerous radical, as one who likes the permission to hate that such psalms seem to provide. I think he would find me on the wrong side of a caution he issued in another related respect. The hard sayings of our Lord are wholesome to those who only find them hard. For there are two states of mind which face the dominical paradoxes without flinching. God guard us from one of them. There are three quick reasons I would like to offer for suggesting that Lewis is wrong about this. I would like to persuade him that he should, after all, accept my Facebook friend request. The first is that Lewis knows how to cut slack on this very same kind of issue, but the persons involved have to be in the New Testament. He alluded to the Lord's hard sayings in the question above. He recognizes the ferocity of the ancient psalmists in the Magnificat. But there he does what he ought to do with the psalms, say that there is a good way to emulate this and a bad way to do so. I would argue that Lewis should follow his own example here. Second, the apostles do not have the same attitude toward the imprecatory psalms that Lewis did. One of the fiercer ones is quoted by Peter when they are considering a replacement for Judas. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Acts 1.20, see Psalm 69.25, and then Psalm 109.8. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Psalm 109.8-10. Psalm 109 is cited by Lewis as being one that was particularly bad, but if it were that bad, then why didn't Peter seem to recognize it? I believe that Lewis fell prey here to a common mistake, 
that of assuming the New Testament writers more or less share our world, as distinct from the ancients, when actually they were much closer to the ancients than they are to us. And third, the New Testament does not invite us to divide the Psalms into two categories, the kind that bless us and the kind that repulse us. We are simply sent to the undifferentiated Psalms. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing Psalms. James 5.13 And the hymn book of the Christian church is to be the entire Psalter. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19, cf. Colossians 3.16. So then, what? I would return to the caution Lewis gave in his essay on national repentance. It is possible, in other words, to be scoring off some of your political enemies and at the same time feel like you are doing something that is personally humble and virtuous. Some people want to use the imprecatory psalms as a way of providing cover for their own personal anger issues. They want to break the teeth in somebody's jaw, and Psalm 3 provides them with a ready answer if rebuked for it. But there are others who understand that a hard world sometimes requires hard words. Lewis gets this when the Lord himself delivers the hard words, but I think we can and should extend the principle. Chapter 2. The Absence of Susan There are two things that really bother evangelical friends of Narnia and they both show up in The Last Battle. One of them is the presence of Emeth in Aslan's country, and the other is the absence of Susan in that same country. The character of Emeth is a striking one, and the problem presented by him a significant one, worthy of a full treatment, so we will deal with it in the next essay. What I would like to do here is address the troublesome absence of Susan from Aslan's country. What does it mean? Where does it fit in this story? Why does the apparent apostasy of Susan seem like a gaping narratival hole that doesn't fit with any part of the larger story? I want to argue that it does not seem to fit because it really doesn't fit. My intention is to show that a final apostasy on the part of Susan is really a literary impossibility. I want to begin by sketching the character of Susan as she is represented in the Narnia stories, beginning with what I take as clear indications of her faithfulness and loyalty. She is a true daughter. I then want to move on to discuss her characteristic failings and temptations. One of the things Lewis does throughout the Narnia stories is show how his child protagonists are fully capable of sins and failures, and Susan is no exception. So when she stumbles, how does she stumble? From that point, I want to move on to discuss the prophetic importance of Care Paravel and the nature of Care Paravel and all of Narnia and how it all relates to Plato. Bless me, what do they teach them in these schools? And then I want to sum up what I think happened to Susan. So we begin with these four children. Once there were four children, whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. We will end with the same four. True Daughter There are many indications throughout the stories that Susan is an honest and sincere follower of Aslan. She can stumble, but when she does, Aslan puts things right again. Welcome Peter, son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome Susan and Lucy. The Lion, 124. She is welcomed by the Lion, and all is right. She and Lucy are the two witnesses of the death of Aslan on the stone table. Please may we come with you wherever you are going? asked Susan. The Lion, 147. They accompany him there because he was hungry for the companionship. 
She clearly loves him. The cowards, the cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? The Lion, 151. And together, the two girls are the first witnesses of the resurrection. They held vigil all night after his death, and in the morning at sunrise the table cracked in two, and Aslan was alive again. The deeper magic had undone all the witch's plans. And he crouched down, and the children climbed onto his warm golden back, and Susan sat first, holding on tightly to his mane, and Lucy sat behind, holding on tightly to Susan. The Lion, 161. She was also the recipient of great gifts. Susan, Eve's daughter, said Father Christmas, these are for you. And he handed her a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. You must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. It does not easily miss, and when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then, wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. The Lion, 104. She grew into a great and beautiful queen, which will be discussed in a moment, but her carriage was not like that of a jadis at all. And Susan grew into a tall and gracious woman, with black hair that fell almost to her feet, and the kings of the countries beyond the sea began to send ambassadors asking for her hand in marriage. And she was called Susan, the Gentle, the Lion 181. When she was courted by Rabidash, more than a few have been struck by the fact that she gave that kind of character the time of day. But there was an explanation. Will she have him? The lady shook her head. No, brother, she said. Not for all the jewels in Tashban. But why had she even thought about it? That was my folly, Edmund, said Queen Susan, of which I cry you mercy. Yet when he was with us in Narnia, truly this prince bore himself in another fashion than he does now in Tashban. For I take you all to witness that marvelous feasts he did in that great tournament and haslitude, which our brother, the high king, made for him, and how meekly and courteously he consorted with us in the space of seven days. But here in his own city he has shown another face. The horse and his boy, 61 and 62. When it became apparent that the Calermines would not let them get away easily, she takes full responsibility for their dilemma. I am the cause of all this, said Susan, bursting into tears. Oh, if only I had never left Caerperavel. Our last happy day was before those ambassadors came from Calerman. The horse and his boy, 67. In Prince Caspian, Lucy is the first one to see Aslan summoning them to go the opposite way. Susan maintained that Lucy was simply being naughty and headstrong. But when Aslan finally reveals himself to her, she puts everything right in exactly the right way. Lucy, said Susan in a very small voice. Yes, said Lucy. I see him now. I'm sorry. That's all right. But I've been far worse than you know. I really believed it was him. He, I mean, yesterday, when he warned us not to go down to the firwood. And I really believed it was him tonight when you woke us up. I mean, deep down inside. Or I could have, if I'd let myself. But I just wanted to get out of the woods and... And... Oh, I don't know. And whatever am I to say to him? We are going to see in a moment that one of Susan's besetting temptations is that of anxiety and fear. Lewis elsewhere argues that certain vulnerabilities have corresponding strengths, and Susan's strength in this regard is tenderness. She is a great archer, but she is a great archer with a tender heart. When they rescue Trumpkin, it is through Susan's marksmanship. He floundered away to the far bank, and Peter knew that Susan's arrow had struck his helmet. 
He turned and saw that she was very pale, but was already fitting a second arrow to the string. But it was never used. Prince Caspian, 29-30 She did what she needed to do, but she didn't have to like it. She was very pale, and when Edmund had a fencing match with Trumpkin, her response is plainly marked out. Susan, who could never learn to like this sort of thing, shouted out, Oh, do be careful! Prince Caspian, 100. And then it came to the archery contest between her and Trumpkin. She was not enjoying her match half so much as Edmund had enjoyed it, not because she had any doubt about hitting the apple, but because Susan was so tender-hearted that she almost hated to beat someone who had been beaten already. Prince Caspian, 102. And then, when she beats him, she tries to salvage Trumpkin's pride. It wasn't really any better than yours, said Susan, the dwarf. I think there was a tiny breath of wind as you shot. Prince Caspian, 102. Fear and Timidity Throughout the stories, if someone is going to hang back or regret having come or be anxious about some new venture, that person is almost certainly Susan. I don't know that I'm going to like this place after all, said Susan. The Lion, 55. I have a horrid feeling that Lou is right, said Susan. I don't want to go a step further and I wish we'd never come. The Lion, 56. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. The Lion, 75. Then we have no hope, said Susan. The Lion, 96. How perfectly dreadful, said Susan as they last came back in despair. Oh, how I wish we'd never come. The Lion, 79. Oh, do let's go back and go the other way, said Susan. I knew all along we'd get lost in these woods. Prince Caspian, 119. Oh, do let's leave it alone, said Susan. We can try it in the morning. If we got to spend the night here, I don't want an open door at my back and a great big black hole that anything might come out of, besides the draft and the dam. Prince Caspian, 19-20 That this is a feature of her personality, and not just something that affected her when she was an English schoolgirl in the strange land of Narnia, can be seen in how she responds at the very end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She is a very great queen by this point, but she is still the one who urges them all to hang back. And in mine too, said Queen Susan, wherefore by my counsel we shall lightly return to our horses and follow this white stag no further. The Lion, 184. Lucy grows up into Lucy the Valiant, while Susan becomes Susan the Gentle. At Caerparavel, said Corin, she's not like Lucy, you know, who's as good as a man, or at any rate as good as a boy. Queen Susan is more like an ordinary grown-up lady. She doesn't ride to the wars. The Horse and His Boy, 176. Mark that comment that she is more like an ordinary grown-up lady. It will appear later. After Susan apologized to Lucy and Prince Caspian and said that she did not know what she would say to Aslan, what is actually notable is what Aslan said to her. Then, after an awful pause, the deep voice said, Susan. Susan made no answer, but the others thought she was crying. You have listened to fears, child, said Aslan. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? A little, Aslan, said Susan. Prince Caspian, 148. Aslan is speaking here to the center of what troubled her, her tendency to listen to fears. The Beauty of Susan Another standing issue in the books is the fact that Susan was regarded as the beauty, 
and Lucy not. Grown-ups thought her the pretty one of the family, and she was no good at schoolwork, though otherwise very old for her age, and Mother said she would get far more out of a trip to America than the youngsters. Edmund and Lucy tried not to grudge Susan her luck, but it was dreadful having to spend the summer holidays at their aunt's. Please note another aspect of this, which is that it was the grown-ups who thought her to be the beauty. She was flattered and reinforced in all this, and it is not surprising that Lucy took this assessment on board also. This is why Lucy was tempted in the voyage of the Don Treader to say a spell from the magician's book that would make her beautiful, over against Susan. Then it changed, and Lucy, still beautiful beyond the lot of mortals, was back in England, and Susan, who had always been the beauty of the family, came home from America. The Susan in the picture looked exactly like the real Susan, only plainer and with a nasty expression. And Susan was jealous of the dazzling beauty of Lucy. But that didn't matter a bit, because no one cared anything about Susan now. The Voyage of the Don Treader, 154. This was Lucy's temptation, not Susan's, but we should be able to connect the dots. All of these issues relate to one another, and that Susan was more beautiful actually, and not just in the opinion of the grown-ups, can be seen in Lewis's comment that when Lucy saw Aslan, she was almost as beautiful as she would have been had she uttered the spell. This tells us that Susan really was more beautiful, but Lucy wasn't plain. Grown-up in the wrong way We have already seen that Susan was old for her age, and so on, but Lewis has been giving us indications of this from the very beginning. At the start of their adventures in Lion, for example, Edmund is kicking against her grown-upness. I think he's an old dear, said Susan. Oh, come off it, said Edmund, who was tired and pretending not to be tired, which always made him bad-tempered. Don't go on talking like that. Like what, said Susan, and anyway, it's time you were in bed. Trying to talk like mother, said Edmund. And who are you to say when I am to go to bed? Go to bed yourself. The Lion, too. We see the same thing in Prince Caspian. Where did you think you saw him? asked Susan. Don't talk like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I didn't think I saw him, I saw him. 121. When we are informed of Susan's absence from Aslan's country, this is the problem that is identified. Sir, said Tyrion, when he had greeted all these, if I have read the Chronicle aright, there should be another. Has not your majesty two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. In short, she had become a grown-up back in England, and this attitude is described as being no longer a friend of Narnia. Oh, Susan, said Jill, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said the Lady Polly. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can, and then stop there as long as she can. The Last Battle, 154 It is not hard to connect this with the first set of temptations, her problems with her internal fears. We should have no difficulty imagining a beautiful girl who finds her identity in that beauty, 
and who has had that identity reinforced by all the grown-ups in her life. She is fearful of not getting there in time, and wants to hang on to it as long as she can, once there. What is someone to do if they find their identity in beauty, in a world where beauty fades? But Aslan had known what Susan was returning to, and he had prepared her for it. Was that what Aslan was talking to you and Susan about this morning? asked Lucy. Yes, that and other things, said Peter, his face very solemn. I can't tell it all to you. There were things he wanted to say to Sue and me because we're not coming back to Narnia. Prince Caspian, 214. In short, Aslan did not prepare her for what she would face back in England in order to abandon her there. Now all this appeals to us because nobody wants Susan to veer off into Aslan's shadow, never to be heard from again. But some might suspect that this is simply an emotional ploy on my part. Play the violins a little more sweetly. Surely Aslan wouldn't do that to our friend Susan. But is there anything more substantive than this? Yes. Care Paravel of the Four Thrones A strong doctrine of providence runs through all the Narnia stories. Aslan is behind everything. He pushed the boat with the infant Shasta in it ashore. He summons Eustace and Jill before they think to call on him. And when the four Pevensey children tumble into Narnia, they find four vacant thrones waiting for them. They are destined to rule at Care Paravel. This is what drives the action of the story. We are not told who built it, but the land of Narnia is defined by that great castle. This is the land of Narnia, said the fawn, where we are now all that lies between the lamppost and the great castle of Care Paravel on the eastern sea. And you, you have come from the wild woods of the west? The Lion, 10. When Tumnus confesses what he was about to do, he says something in passing about the great castle. The feature of those four thrones was common knowledge, even if sometimes disbelieved. And if she is extra and specially angry, she'll turn me into stone and I shall be only a statue of a fawn in her horrible house until the four thrones at Care Paravel are filled, and goodness knows when that will happen, or whether it will ever happen at all. The Lion, 17 We can also see the importance of the castle from the fact that the White Witch laid claim to it. She says she is the Chatelaine of Care Paravel, Empress, the Lion, 55. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. The Lion, 76. Because of another prophecy, said Mr. Beaver, down at Care Paravel, that's the castle on the seacoast down at the mouth of this river, which ought to be the capital of the whole country, if all was as it should be. Down at Care Paravel, there are four thrones, and it's a saying in Narnia, time out of mind, that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve sit on those four thrones, then it will be the end, not only of the White Witch's reign, but of her life and that is why we had to be so cautious as we came along, for if she knew about you four, your lives wouldn't be worth a shake of my whiskers. The Lion, 78. Why, all she wants is to get all four of you. She's thinking all the time of those four thrones at Care Paravel. The Lion, 81. Four thrones in Care Paravel, said the witch. How if only three were filled? That would not fulfill the prophecy. The Lion, 131. The witch wanted to seize all four children in order to thwart the prophecy, but then realized shortly before her attempt to kill Edmund that she could undo everything if only one of the four were missing. In this case, it was Edmund, but it would be equally true if it were Susan. 
When Lucy and Susan were present at the resurrection of Aslan, it is not an insignificant detail that they were looking straight at Care Paravel at the moment Aslan came back from the dead. Then at last, as they stood for a moment, looking out toward the sea and Care Paravel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met, and very slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The Lion, 157 through 158. His resurrection was to be the means of establishing those four children as kings and queens, and they were looking straight at their glorious future at the very moment he obtained it for them. But perhaps the earlier prophecies were just loose Narnian chatter, you know how talking beasts are, or the anxious superstition of the witch. And Lucy and Susan facing toward the castle, well, they had to be facing some direction, didn't they? The real question is what Aslan thinks about Caerparavel. So, what does he call it? That, O oh man, said Aslan, is Caerparavel of the four thrones, in one of which you must sit as king. I show it to you because you are the firstborn, and you will be high king over all the rest. The Lion, 126. Aslan himself calls it Caerparavel of the four thrones. I would submit to you that to have one of the four thrones of Caerparavel sitting permanently empty is not really a literary possibility. The castle of Caerparavel on its little hill towered up above them. Before them were the sands, with rocks and little pools of salt water and seaweed, and the smell of the sea and long miles of bluish-green waves breaking forever and ever on the beach. And oh, the cry of the seagulls! Have you heard it? Can you remember? The Lion, 178 This is why Aslan gave the four of them a solemn promise, and it was a promise grounded in the will of the emperor over the sea. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve, said Aslan. The Lion, 179. Emphasis mine. Once a queen, always a queen. Bear it well, daughters. What do they teach them in these schools? All this should be sufficient but I would like to cinch it just a little bit tighter. Lewis was a Christian Platonist, but he does this in a really admirable way. He turns Plato on his head. Platonism held that the realm of the forms represented ultimate reality, and that this world was a dim reflection of that ultimate reality. But for Plato, the realm of the forms would not have been material, tangible, or dense with molecules. Rather, Plato was thinking of an upscale Euclidville. His was a rationalistic and philosophical project. Lewis, plainly in both The Last Battle and The Great Divorce, and subtly in Letters to Malcolm, inverts all this and makes the realm of the forms denser and more real than our vapory world down here. They found themselves in the new Narnia, in the real Narnia, and this Narnia was more solid, not more spiritual. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there I have seen it all. Ettensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. The Last Battle, 194, Emphasis Mine. When the eagle flew up to see all this, he saw everything that mattered, and that included Care Paravel. 
and Caer Paravel in the heavenly Narnia would still be Caer Paravel of the Four Thrones. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. The Last Battle, 195. All of the old Narnia that mattered, that would include Susan's throne, would it not? Not only so, but Lewis postulates an inverted Russian doll cosmos, with each internal world being bigger and more material than the world which encased it. So, when they go further up and further in, they come eventually to the real garden that was behind the shadow garden where Diggory got the apple. Another world would be inside that garden, and that third world is yet another Narnia. And as they gaze at this backwards onion where each layer is greater than the one before, what do they see? Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and seas and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said. This is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below, just as it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. I see. World within world. Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. The Last Battle, 207. She could see the whole southern desert, and beyond it the great city of Tashban. To the eastward she could see Ker Paravel, on the edge of the sea, and the very window of the room that had once been her own. The Last Battle, 207, Emphasis Mine. Of course she could see Ker Paravel. Was it still Ker Paravel of the Four Thrones? When she could see the very window of the room that had been hers, I wonder if she could see Susan's room, too. Not to put too fine a point on it, I refuse to believe that a craftsman like Lewis would have the shadow Ker Paravel, be Ker Paravel of the Four Thrones, and the second and third Ker Paravels to be limited to three. Not possible. So, when they get into the third Narnia, much greater and larger than the first two, it is here that they can start to see the joining of all worlds. It is here that they see the real England, where their parents are, who are soon to join them. So, we need to be careful. The Shadowland Narnia has gone through its final judgment. All of the first Narnia is either here in the third Narnia, or had veered off into Aslan's shadow. That was not the case with England. The Pevensey parents were there, because of a train accident, and not because of the eschaton in our world. Susan was not with them because Susan was still alive, in England. In fact, she is probably still there, a nice old lady in her nineties, somewhere in Oxfordshire. In sum, I would have been prepared to cheerfully grant difficulties for my thesis if Susan had been traveling with her parents by train, and if she had died in the train wreck together with them, and had then not shown up in the real Narnia, the Narnia beyond. That would be a real difficulty. It is hard to maintain that someone is in heaven when all can plainly see she's not there. But the Susan of this story is the surviving Pevensey, if you can call life in the Shadowlands surviving. Her parents had died her brothers and sisters had died. She was left alone, 
and her story was not close to being done. We can rest assured that she would come at the last to her rightful place and be seated on one of the four great thrones in the ultimate Care Paravel. And if we inquired too closely into what would need to have happened to her in order to bring all this about, we can be assured that this would be a sure way to get Aslan to growl at us. But what would C.S. Lewis himself think about an argument like this one? He was characteristically coy about things like this, but I do think he would have concurred with it. At the very least, he would certainly grant the possibility. As he wrote to one young correspondent, The books don't tell what happened to Susan. She is left alive in this world at the end, having by then turned into a rather silly, conceited young woman. But there is plenty of time for her to mend, and perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end, in her own way. I think that whatever she had seen in Narnia, she could, if she was the sort that wanted to, persuade herself, as she grew up, that it was all nonsense. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. Chapter 3 The Curious Presence of Emeth One episode in the Narnia stories has caused no little consternation for evangelical parents as they have read to their children, and that element of the story concerns the salvation of Emeth. In the previous chapter, I discussed the curious fact of Susan's absence from the heavenly regions in The Last Battle. A second curious fact has to do with Emeth's presence there, and with Lewis's reasons for including him. As we consider this, it is important to get one particular distinction out of the way at the outset. In the minds of many evangelical believers, a broad inclusion of non-Christians in the heavenly kingdom is indistinguishable from theological liberalism. And with regard to an ecumenical comparative religions approach, this instinct is quite correct. We are all seeking after God each in our own way is a central aspect of the theological left, and as such must be rejected by all faithful Christians. The problem with that approach is, as the Apostle Paul might put it, that a religion of God-seekers is an empty set. No one seeks after God. Romans 3.11 If this broad and inclusive approach were true, then Christ died for nothing. With a sorrow deeper than any man has ever experienced, Christ asked his Father to have the cup pass from him, if there were any other way. Matthew 26.39 If the Father could have said something like, well, the Rig Veda has some promising developments, then why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because there was no other way to save us. The purpose of this essay is to take the salvation of Emeth as a starting point for a discussion of who then can be saved. With that discussion occurring among conservative believers who accept the authority of Scripture and the uniqueness and sufficiency of Christ. While it is quite true that Lewis shows more latitude on this question than the average conservative believer does, that difference of opinion we have with him is not in the same category as the difference we would have with the theological liberal. More is going on with Lewis, as I hope to show. Lewis says this, But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangement about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. There is something to differ with here, surely, but it should be plain that this is not a position that says, we are all saying the same thing, really. In other words, it is liberalism to say that faithful Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus, each following the tenets of their own religion sincerely, can be saved for being good people. This is pernicious and false. 
It is quite a separate question to ask whether God in His sovereignty can reach down into a filthy religion like the worship of Tash and do an extraordinary thing by saving someone from all of that. In such a case, that person is not saved by means of his religion, whatever he conceives it to be, but rather is saved from that religion, by grace, through faith. The Case of Emeth I won't do a great deal of explaining the context of the following citations, assuming as I am that the reader of a book like this one is also a close reader of things Narnian. I am assuming you know the story, and will only place a few reminders here and there. The Calermines are running a scam at the stable, with Shift the Ape as their tool. Narnians are being invited by Rishta Tarkin to go into the stable to view Aslan, and to everyone's surprise, Emeth volunteers to go in. Nay, my father, answered Emeth, thou hast said that their Aslan and our Tash are all one, and if that is the truth, then Tash himself is in yonder. And how then sayest thou that I have nothing to do with him? For gladly would I die a thousand deaths if I might look once on the face of Tash. Thou art a fool, and understandeth nothing, said Rishtatarkin. These be high matters. Emeth's face grew sterner. Is it then not true that Tash and Aslan are all one? he asked. Has the ape lied to us? Of course they're all one, said the ape. Swear it, ape, said Emeth. Oh, dear, whispered Shift. I wish you'd all stop bothering me. My head does ache. Yes, yes, I swear it. Then, my father, said Emeth, I am utterly determined to go in. The Last Battle, 126. Emeth despises the lies and hypocrisy that he sees as a characteristic of the Calermine venture into Narnia. He is a devotee of his god, entirely sold out to Tash, but in a way that places him entirely at odds with the wickedness of that religion and with the behavior of all his compatriots. Emeth came walking forward into the open strip of grass between the bonfire and the stable. His eyes were shining, his face very solemn, his hand was on his sword hilt, and he carried his head high. Jill felt like crying when she looked at his face. And Jewel whispered in the king's ear, By the lion's mane, I almost love this young warrior, Calermine though he be. He is worthy of a better god than Tash. The Last Battle, 127 The Narnians, watching him approach the stable, feel an immediate affinity with him, and the thing they see, which Emeth does not yet see, is how he is utterly at odds with his own religion. He is worthy of a better god than that. After the fighting is all over, and the old world has ended, and the saved are sorting things out in the new Narnia, the party of Narnians comes across Emeth, who, when he entered the stable, had found himself in Aslan's country. The others followed where the dogs led them, and found a young Calermine, sitting under a chestnut tree beside a clear stream of water. It was Emeth. He rose at once, and bowed gravely. Sir, he said to Peter, I know not whether you are my friend or my foe, but I should count it my honor to have you for either. Has not one of the poets said that a noble friend is the best gift, and a noble enemy the next best? Sir, said Peter, I do not know that there need be any war between you and us. The Last Battle, 183-184 When they ask him to tell his story, they find out just how remarkable it was. Emeth had yearned to go to war with Narnia, in honest, open battle, but when the actual plan was revealed, he was distraught. And most of all, when I found we must wait upon a monkey, and when it began to be said that Tash and Aslan were one, then the world became dark in my eyes. 
For always, since I was a boy, I have served Tash, and my great desire was to know more of him, if it might be, to look upon his face. But the name of Aslan was hateful to me. The Last Battle, 185-186 After Emoth found himself in heavenly country, he had an encounter with Aslan, and the astonishing thing is that Aslan welcomed him. Then I fell at his feet and thought, Surely this is the hour of death, for the lion, who is worthy of all honor, will know that I have served Tash all my days, and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisrock of the world, and live, and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head, and touched my forehead with his tongue, and said, Son, thou art welcome. The Last Battle, 188, emphasis added. In the subsequent interaction, they get into the theology of the thing, which is where things get interesting. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Then, by reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear, and questioned the glorious one, and said, Lord, is it then true, as the ape has said, that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled, so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me, and said, It is false. The last battle, 188 to 189. So, whatever else Lewis is saying, he is not saying that Aslan and Tash are one, or that all religions teach the same thing, or that we all ascend by different paths up the same mountain. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites, I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me and none which is not vile can be done to him. The Last Battle, 189. This is not the comparative religion, coexist bumper sticker approach. Tash is a foul god, like Moloch in the Old Testament. God saves sinners, and he saves them out of brothels, taverns, casinos, and the temples of Tash. Now, half of what Lewis says here is a commonplace among evangelical believers. It is self-evidently true that hypocrites who offer vile behavior to the true God are actually worshiping a false God and rendering what they are actually offering in another direction entirely. This is preeminently a biblical concept. On one occasion, Jesus was speaking to pious Jews who had believed in him, John 8.31, and he wound up saying this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. John 8.44a Emphasis added. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. John 16.2 Emphasis added. So it is true that someone who claims to be serving Aslan but is doing vile things is actually serving Tash. That's the easy one. But can it go the other way? Can someone claim to be serving Tash, like Emoth, and actually be serving Aslan. Something of a reverse hypocrite? Someone in a foul religion being fair, living in a way contrary to what the religion requires? Emeth had been going in the wrong direction as far as Tash was concerned since he was a boy. As far as Tash was concerned, Emeth had been a heretic for a long time. Lewis puts it this way, Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then, 
Though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? I said, Lord, thou knowest how much I understand. The Last Battle, 189. So taking all this at face value, this was salvation from the religion of Tash, by extraordinary means, not salvation by means of the religion of Tash. Emeth was not the fulfillment of that religion. He was delivered out of it, just as Erebus was delivered out of it. And incidentally, I should mention in passing that the entire culture of the Calermines is obviously a stand-in for Islam. This is most explicit at the beginning of chapter 4 of The Horse and His Boy, when Lewis describes Tashban as having numerous minarets, and a minaret is a tower attached to a mosque. But I said also, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and truly. For all find what they truly seek. Then he breathed upon me and took away the trembling from my limbs, and caused me to stand upon my feet. And after that he said not much, but that we should meet again, and I must go further up and further in. Then he turned him about in a storm and flurry of gold, and was gone suddenly. The Last Battle, 189 Emeth sought for what he did both long and truly, but this was Aslan's doing in him and for him. It was not the doing of Tash, it was Emeth being led, by extraordinary means, away from Tash. So that leads naturally to the question whether such extraordinary interventions actually occur. Does God ever bypass the ordinary means of preaching the gospel in order to save people from their bondage in pagan religions? So what is paganism? We have several difficulties to sort out simultaneously. The first one is that Narnia doesn't really have a New Covenant era and an Old Covenant era. Aslan dies and rises in the midst of Narnian history, but there is nothing corresponding to the Old Testament history of the Jews being supplanted by the New Testament structure of the Church. The second difficulty is that Gentiles in the Old Testament were not synonymous with unbelievers in the New. Most of them were unbelievers, but it was possible to be a Gentile and a devout believer. This matters because in the Old Testament, the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles was not comparable to the relationship between Christians and non-Christians today. In the fourth chapter of Acts, the apostles did a great miracle and were challenged on it. By what power or name have you done this? Acts 4.7 They responded that this man stands before you whole by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Acts 4.10 And this led to the great confession. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The necessity of preaching the gospel to every creature today can be seen in this. Non-believers are not brought to salvation through the power of an anonymous Christ, working behind the scenes. They are saved through the preaching of the name, and if they want to be saved, they must themselves call upon the name. The priesthood of believers has been expanded to all the nations of men, which is why all men are summoned to believe and be baptized. And such were some of you, but ye were washed, but ye were sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, emphasis added. 
In short, non-believers who want to be saved today have an obligation today to repent and believe, calling upon the name of Jesus. Non-Christians have a moral obligation to become Christians. In the course of his Mars Hill Address, about which more in a little bit, Paul says this, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 We see here that the command to repent, given to all men, is not negotiable. The Christian faith is one of world conquest. Everyone must repent, and everyone must believe. Matthew 28.18-20 It is an authoritative summons. But in the same verse, we are also told that the previous ignorance of pagan nations prior to the coming of Christ was something that God winked at. The word there literally means overlooked. God disregarded it. Huh. So, in the Old Testament, Gentiles were under no obligation whatever to become Jews. They could be saved without becoming Jews, and many of them were saved without becoming Jews. The Jews were not the believers of the Old Testament, but were rather the priestly people of the Old Testament. They served in this function for the sake of the Gentile nations. Melchizedek was not a Jew, but he was a priest of the Most High God, and the father of all the Jews paid the tithe to him. Genesis 14.18 Jethro, priest of Midian, Exodus 3.1, the father-in-law of Moses, was not a Jew, and yet he was a worshiper of the true God. Balaam was an ungodly man, but was apparently a genuine prophet with the genuine prophetic gift, Numbers 22.9. Naaman the Syrian became a worshiper of the true God, and the prophet gave him standing permission to continue to push his master's wheelchair into the house of Ramon, 2 Kings 5.18. And let us not forget the massive revival in Nineveh that was brought about through the preaching of Jonah. Matthew 12:41 When Solomon built the temple, the structure included a way for Gentiles, pagans, to pray to the true and living God while remaining Gentiles. The language is quite striking. Moreover concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country for thy great name's sake, and thy mighty hand, and thy stretched out arm. If they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Second Chronicles 6, 32-33, emphasis added. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he drives out the merchants and money changers from the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles had a court at the temple designated for them to worship the true God, and without becoming Jews first. The clean sacrificial animals represented the Jews, and they had filled up the place that had been reserved for the Gentiles. This is why Jesus' rebuke was a two-edged rebuke. They had filled the temple with their thieveries, and they had excluded the Gentiles by means of it. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. Mark 11:17 emphasis added The temple in Jerusalem was for all the Gentiles were there any emeths among them And keep in mind that even though we don't have an old covenant new covenant distinction a great deal of the Narnian context does have a BC feel to it For example centaurs prophesying is not something that frequently happened in the post apostolic period 
The Apostle Paul calls the Cretan Epimenides a prophet, a prophet one of their own, Titus 1, 12-13. And when he is preaching at Mars Hill, he takes as his starting point the altar to the unknown God. Whose idea was that kind of altar? Well, it turns out that the idea came from this same Epimenides, who had been summoned from Crete centuries before by the leaders of Athens in order to deal with a plague that was afflicting the city at that time. Epimenides dealt with it in part by having them establish altars to the unknown god, which they did, stopping the plague. Later, Paul starts with one of those altars as his text, and in the course of his preaching, he quotes Epimenides directly, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own prophets have said. For we are also his offspring. Acts 17.28 Live, move, and have our being is from Epimenides. The second citation, for we are also his offspring, is from a gent named Aridus. The thing that is interesting about that quotation is that it is from a hymn to Zeus, not Tash, Zeus. And the thing we must understand is that there was the celebrity Zeus, the Zeus of legend, the Zeus who was entirely unaffected by the Me Too movement, the Zeus who was an embarrassment to thoughtful pagans, and then there was the Zeus as Emeth and Eridus conceived him to be. This does not make their conceptions orthodox. Remember that Paul is about to say that God overlooked much ignorance. He did not overlook overt evil, as the destruction of Sodom showed, but he overlooked a great deal. Reformed Caution Just a few more comments in closing. The father of the modern evangelical hesitancy to allow for any true salvation outside of a plain proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ may well have been Martin Luther. He was a theologian of the cross, and if the cross was not preached to you, well then, too bad for you. This contrasts sharply with the attitude of Zwingli, who was happy to kick open the gates of paradise to the likes of Socrates and Hercules. The ancient phrase captures our question in a nutshell. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Is that true? And how strict should we be with it? But oddities and quirks can occur to our minds almost right away. What about the guy who is hit by a car on the way to his baptism? The Westminster Confession, to which I subscribe, has in my view a balanced and nicely nuanced approach to the problem. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all of those throughout the world that profess the true religion, and of their children, and it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. WCF 25.2, emphasis added. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. WCF 10.3, emphasis added. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. WCF 14.1, emphasis added. Must someone be called by the explicit preaching of the word and be baptized and brought into the visible church in order to be saved? The answer is, usually. 
The named exceptions that they point to are elect infants dying in infancy and other incapacitated individuals, e.g. the severely retarded, who cannot respond to the preaching of the word in the ordinary way. God's elective decree can touch them there. And we also know that in the Old Covenant, God's elective decree could touch the elect among the Hittites and Assyrians also. Does this change in the New Covenant? I would argue that it does gradually and inexorably change as the gospel makes its progress through the world. The more the gospel spreads, the less possible it is for any kind of ignorance to be overlooked, and such winking was rare to begin with. But if a centurion like Cornelius were living in the westernmost part of the empire a century later, what would his status be? The question is not easy for us to answer, which is fortunate, because the disposal of all such situations is not in our hands, but rather in God's. So then, back to Emeth. If you visualize him as the devout Muslim who refused to respond to the gospel, and who insists on attending his mosque instead, The scenario in the last battle really is problematic. But if you visualize him as someone in the position of Naaman the Syrian, the problem becomes much less acute. If you enjoyed this episode, listen to the full audiobook, The Light from Behind the Sun, now available on Canon Plus.